With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. Another week and another desperate scramble for ideas of something Manchester City to talk about. You can't blame us for turning the Blue Moon podcast into a nostalgia fest. If truth be told, it's actually been quite enjoyable to take an in-depth dive into some areas of the club's history that we've never really discussed at length before, all because of the quick-paced nature of the Premier League and Champions League football. So this week we're going back to City's last promotion. It came in manager Kevin Keegan's first season at Main Road and it saw the team finish top of what is now the Championship with 99 points and 108 goals scored. I'm your host David Mooney and and with me this week is City fan Howard Hawking. Hello. How are you doing, Howard? I'm doing okay, not bad. Good, good. Now, before we dive into the nostalgia part of today's show, um, there's the little matter of the Blue oh. Moon Podcast Toilet Roll Challenge. Um, oh, I, the, I know the, the, the title music has barely finished, and we are and we are, we are diving into this already this week. Um, you know, you get one attempt to see how many kickups you can do with the loo roll. To quickly recap the current leaderboard, out in front on a massive eight somehow uh, is Richard Burns. Behind him is Opta's Duncan Alexander with a quite respectable four. Uh, then me and Dunbrook are tied in the bronze medal position on three. Uh, if you want to stay off the bottom, though, you'll need to do more than two because that's where Stephen McInerney is. Uh, that, that was his score from a few weeks ago. Uh, how are you feeling? I'm, honestly, I'm getting palpitations here as <laughs> you're talking. Really? Uh, I've never been good at... With a football, I'd struggle to get, get into the top three. With a toilet roll, I, I've had two minutes uh, practice at this, and I've tried dropping it onto my foot in the two different ways, like on its side. Paper and first every, or card every, first. Yeah, exactly. Or And every time it's just bounced off and hit something. So I, don't, I think Richard's safe, to be honest. Let's put it that way. Let's put it that but way, my, yeah. I, the only thing I'm glad of, when you told me you were doing this, I assumed I might have to video it. Oh, no, no, so, no. It's it's purely, like, just give us a count out loud as you do it. That's We'll take that as, as read. I, I think people are generally quite honest. So, uh, Richard yeah. Burns aside, I, I think he might have lied a bit. But, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll come to that a bit later on. To be honest, it, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. It's so. the sort of person he is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Would you like me to do it now? Please? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're delaying, aren't you? You're just delaying and delaying. So um, <laughs> taking it into the corner, yeah, hoping yeah. for the whistle. Hold, right. Holding Hold. it off. Right, microphone down. Right. Give us a count out loud. Right here we go. Oh. <laughs> That did not last long. That sounded like uh, three or four. It was three. It was three. So you're joining me and Dan in the bronze medal position. That's not now bad. I, That's not bad. I could have gone for four, but it was heading towards the couch, so I could have done a mess over serious injury. Oh, we haven't had so, one of them yet. That would have been. That you made great radio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's just say, yeah, it bounced off immediately, but I managed to get two. Very quick uh, touches on it. So. Lovely stuff. So you are currently sharing the bronze medal position with me and Dan. Um, 
I, I, I don't get me wrong, Coward. I've got a hunch that we're all going to fall out of this position at some point yeah. soon. So you know, don't get your hopes up. But hey ho, who knows? To be honest, I've seen people doing it. I thought it would be quite easy, <laughs> but it isn't. I it's really not, it, is it? Yeah, no, it just doesn't. Don't go back. I don't know. Maybe I, I should have practiced a bit more, shouldn't I? But. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Right, uh, well, we're going to move on and we're going to talk about Kevin Keegan's promotion season because everyone that was there remembers it as a season at City as a roller coaster of big wins, exciting performances and excellent football. But as with any campaign, there were highs and there were lows throughout the year. Uh, Howard, before we start, I'm going to give us a little bit of a flavour of what people were listening to at that time because the music went down really well last week. So uh, this was what was in the UK chart that season. Howard, um, looking back now, what are your first impressions about that season? When I say Kevin Keegan's promotion season, 2001-2, what's your immediate kind of feeling about it? Uh, My perceptions of the season are it's one of my favourite seasons as a City supporter. Uh, Just just a fun rollercoaster ride that was some of the best football I'd seen. And it enjoyable, just a laugh, just, you know, one of those... uh, um, a much needed one really uh, and it just felt just felt as though the club was back you know it was about to go into a new era and be a brighter future basically it's uh it's football to smile about and i think we needed it at that time so it was brilliantly timed as well that's not to degrade what had come before especially you know of joe royal because i think he'd done a great job but it just felt like fun football and it had been quite a long time since I'd seen that so. yeah he, de- he definitely I mean I wrote a thing years ago where my headline to it was that Kevin Keegan brought the fun back to main road and it, and it absolutely was the case um, yeah. what what did you think about the appointment at the time though bearing in mind that he I think it, it he was his first job after England wasn't it it was uh, I think he had time off as well so it wasn't he didn't come straight off the, the England job did he well he was full manager up until 99 or was it? Two, yeah. It might have been two thousand. He left Fulham, so it it have only it might have only been a matter of months, you know, between leave, uh, leaving mm. England and, and joining City. I think because obviously he'd already had his reputation. I was I was very happy with it, but I mean I was happy with it. There's no two ways about it because I th- I think you knew immediately we were going to get some some entertaining football and some some crazy scorelines probably. What I think at the back of my mind, what you know what. I mean, this was the championship, so we weren't going to get the world's best manager. So, you know, we were, we didn't have our choice of everyone, the, the world's greatest. And I think with that in mind, being the championship, I think it was uh, something to be really happy about. The, the only doubt was the way he left England 
he just it felt as though he'd mentally scarred and tired and he admitted he wasn't up to the job and he had that little nagging doubt at the back of my mind that club football could do the same to him yeah. it's club football in a way I mean England job you say it's easy because you only have to have a match every, but you are under enormous scrutiny but club football is incessant you know you never have a break so there was that doubt about not the football he'd play but more how he'd cope with it I think yeah what did you think of the team that had been relegated the, the previous season That like because obviously he came in and he didn't actually make that many changes to it right at the start he brought in Berkovic and Stuart Pearce and that was pretty much it um, so, kind of like for your hopes for two thousand and one two, were you kind of were you kind of optimistic based on the team that had come down, or did you think actually this squad needs some improving? No, I did. Well, who did anyone leave of note? Uh, Mark Kennedy left. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, they were a favourite, Mark. Yeah, no, I mean we were the we were the bookies' favourites going into the season, and the team was more than good enough. Uh, I expected us to go back up. Uh, I mean, with Berkovic coming in as well, that's, you know, that's... Had he just come in during that summer, yeah? Yeah, because his debut was the Watford game, the, the first game of the season. It's weird because I, uh, I've i been playing this season on Championship Manager 0102, and as soon as you play at a city, Berkovic says he wants to leave to go to a bigger club. <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, he well, had a point. <laughs> no, but I mean, if he's just just joined, uh, and yet, and yet, you know, you just you refuse a transfer request, and he keeps putting in eight out of ten plus performances. So yeah, the the, the team. I mean, if you talk, if you look at Joe. If you look at that Premier League season beforehand, Joe will talk about bad luck and key things going against him and injuries. I think there was a run. It wasn't the worst squad in the world. It wasn't a, a squad that. You, know, you think, yeah, that's going down. So by keeping that squad together, I think City were, were right to be considered favourites. Yeah, and of course, of course, there would be more transfer dealings as the season went on. It's almost like they learnt the lesson from from the previous relegation, where they did they they did replace key players with not so key players, and it just yeah. it only went in one direction, and that was downwards. Where this time they went right, we're going to give it a go. And in fact, we we heard on last week's show how how Joe Royal felt disappointed to be sacked. Uh, looking back, the appointment of Keegan was definitely not a bad move for the club. Here's Chairman David Bernstein explaining to the podcast why they made the change. He's a very particular sort of manager, a great personality, but but certainly we all we all felt as a board that he he would be someone with that stature and that ability to. You know, create excitement and, and and create momentum and do something quickly, because we we just felt we couldn't afford to languish around there for two or three seasons. We had to, you know, having had that back-to-back promotions, we needed to get back up there quickly, and uh, and you know, and it worked out. That was a wonderful season that we had yeah, our first year with him, with um, uh, you know, some, with some great players and Berkovitz and Ali Bernabeu and so on. It was a, it really was. And sometimes we had a man sent off and played great football with ten men and, you know, wiped the floor with the opposition. So it was it was a really if I remember correctly, we had nearly enough 100 points and 100 goals, you know, and we there was no playoffs for us that season. It was, uh, you know, we were very, very good. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. One of the directors at City at that time was former player Dennis Stewart as well. He'd been friends with Keegan for quite some time, and he also told the podcast why they wanted him in the dugout in the first place. Kevin was a short-term, short-term um, motivator, and that's what we needed at the time. You know, Joe got relegated back down to the to the first division and we had financially because we'd, we'd backed uh, people in the in the market financially very similar to when we got relegated to the second division we had one year to get out 
Otherwise, it'd be literally a fire sale. We'd have to start selling players because the finances wouldn't take two years at the, at the second division and then after the premiership in the first division. So we had one more year to get out and we needed someone to move us fast. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Facebook.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. So Howard, when, when Bernstein says that, that they needed that first time promotion back then, how, how key was that? I wouldn't have known at the time. But I think, yeah, now we know what we know. And we'd had financial difficulties all the way up to, obviously, 2008, when we most certainly suddenly did not have financial difficulties, that money was the key in a way. Uh, and we know from Keegan that he needs to be supported in the transfer market. And we know from City that we'll, <laughs> we'll historically buy players, even if perhaps we haven't thought <laughs> about whether we can afford those players. So it was kind of important, I think, if we hadn't gone up, we'd have lost, obviously. by We'd kept a lot of those players. So not just the finances of it. If we'd gone back up, those players stay. So there's a lot of you know, there's players in that squad that really could play in the Premier League and had already done. So the likes of Wanchop, Berkovic, Moore, yeah, what, Benabia, even at that age, and so many more, would, you know, if we'd not gone up, would have been straight, would not settle for a second year in that division. Uh, Sean Mike Phillips might because obviously he's a youngster coming through so you wanted to keep that squad together and have a you know, crack at the Premier League so going back up as soon as possible yeah, was important for that reason as well Yeah, I want to talk about one of the other signings as well at, at that stage I mean we, we said he brought in Berkovic and that was £1.5 million spent Stuart Pearce was absolutely free he was a, he was a, a free transfer at the start of the season for his final year um, forget everything that listeners forget everything you think of him as a manager as a player how important was Stuart Pearce to City Howard? Yeah, well, he was, what was he, 39 by then? Yeah. But he was Stuart Pearce. <laughs> he was a, one of my favourite left-back. So, again, you know, we talk about we talk about getting players with, you know, past their prime. Well, he was obviously at 39 past his prime. and But, again, he, was, he looked the same. He, he had that commitment. He couldn't have done it in the Premier League, really, at that age. But in the Championship, yeah, it was just what he needed. And, obviously, a leader. You know, it's just the legs might be really on the way out. But he was a leader and a professional and still had it in his legs to do a job at that level. So, yeah, a really good a good little signing for City. Uh, is how I remember it anyway. The other the other player was obviously Ayle Berkovic that came in that summer. Um, his creativity was an absolute revelation for City at that time as well, wasn't it? Yeah, well, he's just too good for that division. Simple as that. <laughs> just uh, surprised... Uh, it was a Celtic player, I think, but he'd been on loan. I don't know where he'd been on loan at. It's, we we know the the downside of Alberkovic is you know just look at the number of clubs he played for, and then you see he can be problematic attitude wise for managers, uh, football skill wise. Just yeah, absolute different gravy there to use that phrase. <laughs> he he's, he should be playing in the Championship. We were, we were lucky to get him. To yeah. he, he scored on his debut against Watford. So did Stuart Pearce. Um, do you remember that game? It was it was Kevin Keegan's exciting city against Gianluca Vialli's exciting Watford. All I remember, so if I'm thinking of the right game, that the weather was really nice. Uh, and it just, obviously, it was that, that August hope that you always get. I don't really remember the specifics of it. I know, I think they had a player sent off as well, but we were. it was a good start because it looked like we're playing the sort of football we wanted to see and we expected from Kevin Keegan. Uh, and yeah, 
Sean Ghost was on his way, of course. To, yeah, uh, there, there was a wonderful. There, there was a wonderful moment in that game where it contrasts the past and the present for City of of how bad things had got in the past and how good they were going to get for that season. Where uh, the assist for Gota's opening goal was made by Laurent Chave. And um, ah, a little the, chip, yeah, a little chip to the back post. Uh, but the pre-assist, the pass to him, was a wonderful piece of skill from Berkovic that that yeah. took out three players. And the, the commentary just goes, uh, Berkovic slipped back to Xavi, and it just that that blows my mind. That bit of commentary, just because of uh, of the completely different scales that those two were operating on. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. It wasn't until a few weeks later that Keegan went and signed Ali Benabia. At the time, but I think we have to paint a picture that, that this wasn't a time now when City are linked with a player. You can go on YouTube and Google, yeah. kind of find out what they were like. At the time, we couldn't do that. We, you know, you, you couldn't just have a quick look on the internet and get some video of Ali Benabia playing for PSG or wherever. So, I mean, had you heard of him? No. <laughs> I mean, you look at him now, it's like, I know more, you know. I know a bit about French football. Uh, I'll watch any football, and you know stuff going on a bit. He he'd won the league. I mean, he didn't win it with PSG. He'd won it. Who we got him from? He won it with I think Monaco. Was it Bordeaux? So he'd won the league twice with them. And obviously Keegan had seen him as Newcastle man. He destroy his own Newcastle team whilst playing for one of those. I don't know. Was it Monaco in the? Could have been Monaco. Yeah. Yeah, it won't have been the champ. Might have been the Champions League. Uh, so no, I I knew absolutely nothing. Yeah, basically, it's one of those players where you wait until he's on the pitch. You go, oh, oh, <laughs> wow, <laughs> this, this guy looks all right. Uh, that's when we knew. Uh, what we were getting. Yeah, well, both he and Berkovic hit it off in the middle. And uh, goalkeeper Nicky Weaver explained to the podcast a few years ago what the pair of them were like to play with. He's one of the best players ever. I don't think everyone people really knew how good Isle was. Because we had Ali Benabia as well, who caught the eye with all his tricks and stuff. But Isle was such a good player. He's as good a player as I've ever played. You could have slotted Isle into any team in the world and he'd have done a job like, you know, he was a good, really good footballer. Isle probably let himself down a bit with a bit mouthy and his attitude, but a great player. And we had him and Ali, and oh, Ali just done great that year. And Because uh, I, I remember Ali coming, he, he trained on the Friday and he just... Just look like this little dumpy fella, just you know, who's this fella? And he trained and we thought, oh, we didn't do much because date when we played Birmingham, the early kickoff on Saturday, and I think we won 3 0. And he just like ran the game, and everyone was like, wow. And then, so him, him and I in the middle were great. For a pledge of two dollars a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Nicky Weaver speaking to us about uh, Berkovic and Bernabia there. I mean, Howard, at that time, what was it like going to Main Road knowing that you were going to see that sort of football? Yeah, well, I say it was much needed. When did you last felt that way? We'd been, obviously, we'd had two promotions. So we'd felt the joy, and then we'd had the, the relegation and the, you know, which we were used to as City fans at that time. 
but there was just something different about the football. It felt freer, you know, just more joyful to watch. And Keegan, the thing was, Keegan only had this way of playing. Uh, it, and you'll, I think you'll mention during this this show the red cards because you've mentioned it on Twitter this yeah. week. It didn't matter if we had a player sent off. We just, you know, if a football team has a player sent off, right, hook the striker off, uh, put a player at the back, uh, keep it tight, uh, let's see this one out. With Kevin Keegan, it didn't matter. He only had one way of playing. And, you know, if it backfired, and it did a lot in the early early part of the season, we just didn't change. Just kept going. Maybe signed someone. That was the way out of it. Signed someone. <laughs> signed someone else who could score goals or dribble or... And, you know, at the time, I'm, get, I'm sure I wasn't that blasé about it. Because the key thing that I misremembered about the season is it wasn't a walk in the park. Now, you look at 99 points, 108 goals, that just sounds like our Centurion season where we just... Obviously Blew everybody games. away, yeah. Yeah, so there's 46 games here. But even if, you know, points per game, you still look at that and it's, it's over to a game. It's like mid-80s version in the Premier League. That's a, a great haul. But it's, it it's a title-winning haul in the Premier League most seasons, isn't it? Most seasons until the last couple of years. But you look, but you then look at that season, and it was nothing like that in the early two months. Uh, and I think a third of the way through the season, you know, we're, we're nowhere near the top. So I was enjoying the football, but I would not say I was like, yeah, this is going to be amazing at that point. That that came later on in the season. Yeah, when when Bernabia and Berkovic clicked, I mean, just can you can you sum up how good they were? No, not, I mean, yeah, I do a lot of writing, but not really. It was, I'd not seen, I'd not seen us play. It was playing with two playmakers like that. And it's just like, you know, just saying, no, we're going to put them both in rather than one of them. And we're going to, we're just going to score more goals in the opposition. They were just, yeah, absolutely beautiful to watch. And it, I, I it suppose, was made, really. It was made even better, sorry, as you say, that I didn't know about Bernardo until he yeah. turned up. It was just so fresh. I suppose, really, it's very much like um, for for younger listeners when you went the first time you've watched David Silver for ninety minutes and you've watched him alongside someone like Kevin De Bruyne and you've seen the work that they two get together that the two get together yeah. and they can they can how they can unpick defenses. That was it was like the first time City fans had experienced that in well certainly in my lifetime I don't remember a City team doing that I mean I wasn't really that I wasn't old enough really to watch uh, Brian Horton's swashbugglers uh, and remember them in that kind of way but I don't really remember them doing that sort of thing it was very very much wing play get it you know get it in the danger zones and, and, and create chances whereas these two these were they were passing it around and they were they were knocking it into gaps and seeing space and just the movement yeah. of the two of them was incredible we all love a playmaker, but so to have two in the team at the same time, and it wasn't all season. I think Berkovic got injured early doors. I think we lost at Norwich, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for much of the season they were playing together, yeah. I think Bernabe came in partly because of that Berkovic injury, uh, but maybe he would have come in anyway. Uh, so it was bold from Keegan to do that, to put them both in, because, you know, let's be honest. It obviously left us susceptible to uh, conceding goals as well. But he he obviously realised we've just got a better team than yeah. everyone else, and you know we will come through most games because of that. When you've got the likes of One Chop and Huckabee, you know, and go to just I mean that firepower. If you've got that firepower, then you go yeah you know, use it. Uh, 
and take the consequences if we'll concede a few goals. So. Yeah. Well, let's hear now from Ayo Berkovic. We spoke to him at City Square about 12 months ago. Unfortunately, there's quite a lot of background noise because of the location. But you can hear what he's got to say, and he starts by explaining what it was like when he joined City. When we arrived to City, I think Kevin Keegan told me, just go, enjoy your game, enjoy your football, because the crowd, they want to see attractive football, attacking football, with a lot of talent, with a lot of skill, and this is what we've done. What, what was it like to be in that team with so many attacking and flair players? Easy to play when you've got a lot of good players. It's much easier to play. Everybody wants the ball. Everybody can pass the ball. The movement is very good. What? Uh, I mean, you scored a, a fair few goals for City. Is there any stand out as a favourite? Oh, uh, I don't remember all of them, but uh, I think all all the atmosphere and all the view of the club was uh, very enjoyable and it was a pleasure for me to play in this club. I'm just thinking about that solo goal against Norwich. Norwich, yeah, it was one of the best goals. Yeah. What, what was going through your mind? And just get the ball and start running and suddenly I find myself in front of the goal, make some tricks and score the goal. It was a very important game for me because my mum came to see this game especially. I scored two goals in this game, if I remember. Very good game. <laughs> Check out exclusive City interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. Al Berkovich talking about his time at City there. Um, when you think of of, of Bernabia especially, Howard, um, he was obviously a lot later in his career than Berkovich was. Where do you think he ranks in terms of uh, kind of quality City players, but also influential City players? Uh, I think he ranks highly on favourite players, but the truth is, influence-wise... It's a one season, and is one season enough for him to, you know, be high up in our list? Well, after the last ten years, obviously he's going to plummet down the list because the influence of players in the last ten years, yeah, you know, the list is longer than both my arms and your arms put together. He <laughs> uh, was crucial to that season, but I don't, I wouldn't put him high as an influential player in our history. I would just put him. High is a, a cult player and an enjoyable player and a favourite player because of what he gave us in one of my favourite seasons. What about if he'd because been younger? Course, well, if been younger, we probably wouldn't have got him. So you know, you have to be just say, well, just be glad we did see something of him. If he'd been younger, he'd be much higher up the list because, as I say, won two French leagues, played for PSG. We probably got him because he was thirty-three, and we're lucky to get him. But, of course, he couldn't replicate that in the Premier League, by which time, of course, he'd have been 34. Yeah. So, yeah, if he'd been 27 in that that Premier League season, we'd obviously probably have seen a lot more of him and we'd have had more years of him, yeah, because he retired and then went to play in the Middle East, so didn't really retire. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I'd, I'd just say, make you know, just take what you can from that season. But without him, would we have gone up? Well, probably still would have done. Yeah, there was just so much in that team. It just made it all the more spectacular and enjoyable that he was there with Berkovic, uh, yeah, breaking records basically. Yeah, and I suppose if anything else as well, those those players coming in, the likes of Bernabia and Berkovic, justify the the board's decision to to swap Joe Royal for for Kevin Keegan because you don't see those sorts of players joining City if Joe Royal had, had, had a. I'm, I'm fairly sure Joe Royal could have got City back up to the Premier League, but it just wouldn't have been in the same yeah. sort of style, you know. Yeah. 
No, absolutely agree, yeah. Yeah, right. Well, uh, let's hear now from Darren Huckabee, who earlier this season told the podcast that he felt lucky to have played in the same team as Ali Benabia. Well, when he first t- turned up on his first training session, I thought we bought like a taxi driver because, you know, he's a little, slightly overweight, a little little fella, and you're thinking, well, what's going on here? And then you see him play. I think his first game was at Birmingham at home, I think. And literally, I think he got a standing ovation. It, you know, he probably only trained once just before that, but, you know, what a player, what vision. The City fans are lucky to see you know, a little glimpse of how good he, how good he was. You know, Ali Bernabia was you know, one of the best players I've ever seen. It's, it's kind of a shame that he probably came to, to England a bit too late, really. If he came when he was 25, 26, I think people would speak, speak of him as, you know, like, like they do a Zola in Burkamp because he was, he was that good. Get involved with the debate on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Howard, we mentioned a 3-0 win against Watford and then uh, City went on to lose 2-0 at Norwich, as you said, as part of a run of just six wins in the first 12 games. It culminated in a 2-1 defeat at Preston. Uh, the winning goal that day was scored by John Macken, who later won on to sign for City for £5 million the following February. It was an absolutely spectacular finish from almost the halfway line, smashed over the top of Nicky Weaver. When I interviewed him in 2011, I asked him about that goal. It was, uh, it was a while ago, that, but it's... Uh... It's one that I remember fondly. You know, it was a it was a good goal and it was a good win for Preston at the time. Yeah. Did you did you mean it? Of course, I meant it. Every every striker means a goal when he scores it like that. Yeah, no, I did I did mean it. I did mean it. I remember uh, looking at just a little bit before, thinking, you know, if it bounces, if it comes over, I'm having a shot because he's off his line, and obviously it landed perfectly, and uh, I just uh, just hit it. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. John Macken talking to us about, uh, weirdly, his time at Preston there. Um, Howard, did you ever worry that the season wasn't going to come together? at that? Because like, at that point, it must have been about 12, 13 games in and City was still languishing around mid-table. Uh, yeah, I think we're about eighth or third of the way through. Uh, yeah, I went, to, I went to Preston that day. Uh, all I remember, I remember the goal, obviously. That's the side story of the season. Anyone scored against us, we'd sign them. So, I think Lee Bradbury's going to make an appearance later in this show, is he not? So. Uh, he, he isn't, but he he is on the on the video of the highlights. Uh, I think he scored against us for Portsmouth. Yeah, when we lost there, two yeah. one. Also, uh, so yeah, in fact, it was only about two weeks, three weeks later, I think, after this. Yeah, all I remember that day is raining, just <laughs> just miserable city defeats. Always, you know, like Wigan in the cup final. Always accompanied by poor weather, it seems, so and just getting wet afterwards. Uh, so that's my abiding memory <laughs> of being in the away end that day. But yeah, it did feel that way. It just felt like we had a soft underbelly. It felt like it's one step forward, one step back at that time. It's like, yeah, you get a win, you get two wins together, but we just weren't getting the runs together. Uh, but the thing is with the Championship, I wouldn't say you're panicking at that point because they are such... You go below the Premier League, the top division, there's such long seasons that you know you've got a lot of time to, to get things right, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, when you think of some of the defeats that season, there were there were some absolute poundings that City took. Yeah. They lost 4-0 at West Brom. They lost 4-0 at home to Wimbledon. That was weird. <laughs> it's, I think they did the double overs. And they, they were the only team that did, yeah. Stockport yeah, came close. Point of Stockport, so, or point or two. I don't think we beat Stockport that season. Yeah, it was so topsy-turvy at the beginning. That 4-0 at home to Wimbledon was weird. Uh, just one of those things. They would, I think they got two in the last 10 minutes, but it could have been more. Yeah. Were, you know, it's just one of those things where they were just firing them in and finding space. And Yeah, it was so up and down at that point. I think that Wimbledon one, we'd had injuries. I think Richard Dunn was playing at right back and was yeah, being, was all over the place. He just 
basically the team was set up all wrong. So I think it took Keegan quite a while, you know, to get the team shaped right as well. That's how he wanted, yeah. He, um, it's interesting. Neil Shipley show every time we played Wimbledon at that stage as well. Um, yeah. By by the end of that season, City had the worst defense of the top six. They they'd let in more goals than any other team in the top six, mm. and yet they still run away with the league. It's really weird. Yeah. It, well, is it that surprising? <laughs> I mean, we knew that it's a team that was going to concede goals, so not that. And as you say, we kind of they did it in clutches. So you know, four against West Brom was it? Four Wimbledon. Uh, they lost 4-3 at Coventry as well. There was Yeah, like... so basically we had our off days when we were bad. We were really bad. Uh, so the kind, you know, the figures were probably due to a handful or two of, you know, well, a handful of really bad performances, in defence at least. So. And even in the big wins as well. Like, like they, they conceded two at Sheffield Wednesday, but they scored six. So it's like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just <laughs> yeah, inc- some mean, incredible uh, games. Yeah, I don't know if we had problems with the goalkeepers as well. It's like chopping and changing what did Nash not get injured and uh, Weaver would get injured. So, yeah, and those defensive injuries, I think it was Ed Chiller who was injured as well. Uh, you know, gets a very bad image from City fans, but was doing well at that time. So a lot of chopping and chain, changing, which I think, but it's a long, long season, you know, Basically, the class tells in the end, does it not? Yeah. Well, the goalkeepers, as you mentioned, were swapped throughout the season. Uh, Nicky Weaver had lost his place to Carlo Nash at the end of Joe Royal's relegation season the year before. But under Keegan's clean slate policy, that had all been forgotten. So here he is explaining to me what happened at the start of 2001-2. I I I remember I tweaked my thigh in pre-season. And I think at the start of the season, I'm not 100% sure, I don't know. I may be wrong on that one, but... um, Anyway, I tweaked my thigh and, and I missed, Nashi played the first game we won. So I was on the bench and then he... In fact, I don't even think I was on the bench for the first game. I was on the bench for the next game away at Norwich. And he'd come off injured after about five minutes. I think he cracked a rib. And I went on and then I played about... He sort of like swapped us about a little bit that season. And you go in for seven or eight games. You think you're doing all right. Then he's going to say, Nicky, I'm uh, going to put Nashi in on Saturday. You're like... Thinking, wow, all right. Uh. But then... Nash would go in and do all right. Then he'd pull me and say, you're playing Saturday. I remember we played away at Ipswich in the Cup. And Nash had been playing, doing okay. And he just pulled me the day before and said, I'm playing you tomorrow night. And you're like, wow. And Nash was like, he's like, no, I'm just changing it. So he just tried to keep us both fresh. We probably played about the same amount of games that year. Please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. We also spoke to Carlo Nash about that season and his memories as well. Uh, this is what he had to say. I think it was the... Only the second game in, we played Norwich away and um, got need in the back, and I had to I had an injury for a month, uh, sideline for a month with a blood clot on my kidney. So obviously that gave Nicky the chance to get back in the team, do well, and and to be fair to Nicky, he did do well, um, and there was no reason why he should have come out of the team. And then I got back in via a cup game, which I had a chance, and stayed in, and then. I got dropped for no reason and Nicky came back in. So it was we, we kind of shared the duties, if you like. And then, unfortunately for Nicky again, he did his his knee, I think, um, early the following year, away at Birmingham, I think it was. And I came on, played from then till the end of the season where we got promoted. And it felt like, certainly from the fans' point of view, that Kevin Keegan couldn't really decide on who his number one should be. I think we were, to, if I'm completely honest, we were, we were level pegging, um, you know, in the pecking order. And, and I think that's that decision was... Obviously, hard for for Kevin to to decide on which he thought was the best goalkeeper. I mean, obviously, 
Um, Nicky had been there a number of years and obviously he was a favourite through what he'd done there. Um, uh, and, and in the end, I think, um, you know, it, it was only the fact that he got injured that gave me a chance to get back in the side. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. So, Howard, we can't talk about this season without talking about this. Carlo Nash mentioned it there. Um, this season was kind of like, I, I, I term it almost the end of the beginning, if you will, for, for Nicky Weaver, because it was, yeah. it, it, even though we had kind of like 10, 11 years at City, it felt very much like he had two different spells because there was there was pre-injury Nicky Weaver and post-injury Nicky Weaver, and this was this was the point at which he got his injury. Um, do you remember that night at Birmingham? I've watched the highlights and it, you know, it seems innocuous, but I honestly, looking back now and listening to him, I don't, I forget how bad his injuries were, how bad it was, and what he went through in those at such a young age as well uh, to beat that injury. I really did not realise that my memory doesn't tell me just how bad it was for him uh, so no it's not you know in that season it's not one of those moments where you think you know it didn't it wasn't clattered it wasn't something that happened he just you know tried to kick the board into and he couldn't do it he yeah. felt something was wrong it's very see one of those things you know it's like cruciate ligaments they, they have to be very innocuous it like someone walks off the pitch you know because something don't feel right, and then you don't see them again for the rest of the season. And it felt like that at the yeah at the time. It was like not something that stood out at the time, but yeah, it was the start of a hellish period in his life. So. As, as the years went by, I genuinely didn't think I, I I'd forgotten how good he'd been. And Nicky Weaver was my mm. I'm not going to lie, Nicky Weaver was my hero when I was a kid. I was I was a goalkeeper yeah. growing up. He was he was the first City goalkeeper that came in, and I remember doing kind of exceptional things between the posts as I was going to Main Road and watching them. <laughs> And like as the years went by after his injury, I just I I kind of forgot how good he he'd been in City's two promotion years uh, under Joe Royal, and even in that that kind of season he was sharing with Carlo Nash, they, I, he he was putting in some good performances, and then you know he'd been injured two, three, four years, and you just kind of forget. And City had signed you know Peter Schmeichel, David Seaman, David James had been there for a while, and you just kind of it just kind of disappeared into the ether. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm goalkeeper as well. You know, a lot, well, sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. Sometimes so I, get, I do have yeah a fascination with them as well. Yeah, he's a it's kind of an iconic figure with his baggy goalkeeper shirts, uh, a size too big. It's like kind of Sean Wright Phillips wearing a too big a shirt, and obviously Wembley and that run. And he was he was a real dependable good keeper, and just felt like one of us as well. Yeah, he wasn't a Mancunian, was he? But it felt like one, and yeah, just such. I do wonder again if you know the treatment he got. I don't know. I don't know if he feels any grudges, but he kept having the same operation, and nothing was happening. It would come back. Obviously, technology is not what it was now. No, sports science was just a thing that was just beginning at that time, uh, or beginning in the way that we view it today. Yeah, such a great shame, uh, and in a way, I thought at the time. If anyone, you know, it's easy for a goalkeeper because you're not running up and down the pitch for ninety minutes. That he stood a chance because of that, but really, players, after, you know, after your body's hacked away at that much, it, it must be hard to to come back and get anywhere near the level you have before. Yeah, well, let's let's hear from Weaver himself. This is how he described his injury to us when we spoke to him back in 2013. Someone shot, obviously for Birmingham, it was just going wide. So I just dived, sort of like just to cover it. Like I knew it was going wide, but you just dived to cover it. And so I dived to my left, and as I landed, I just felt something funny in my right knee. 
they're thinking, I've got to open. Put the ball down for the goal kick, and I'm, I'm thinking, I, I can't kick this. But I'm thinking, well, there's nothing wrong with me. And I'm thinking, so I've tried to kick it, and I think I've just, like, hit it straight at it. Oh, and I, I'm thinking, oh, what have I done? So the physio come on, and I'm like, my knees just I give way on me. I don't know what's happened. And uh, so I come off, and then I went for a scan the next day, and I just tore my cartilage, which, you know, five or six weeks, routine sort of thing. It was March the 5th. 2002, I'll never forget it, and uh, I thought I'd be back, you know, before the end of the season. I went for the operation, they said it had gone successful, I rehabbed it, just as about, when I was about to go back into training, my knee just ballooned up. Well, that's not right. So I went to see the guy again, had another operation, same thing happened again, went down all the process of rehabilitation, just as about to go back into training, ballooned up again. So that's when it's, Started alarm bells started to ring, thinking, well, there's something not right here. And I remember going for a walk around the training ground with a physio at Carrington. He's saying, we don't know what's up with your knee, Nicky. You know, I'm thinking, well, surely. You ask a physio, how long are we going to be out for? And they can tell you. And he's saying, we don't know. You know, we've been in there twice and we haven't sorted the problem out. We don't know what. So I'm sort of like, right, oh, OK. Um, and Paolo Wanchop had just been over to Cleveland, Ohio in America. There's a place there called the Cleveland Clinic. And that's where the Costa Rica national team used. And they said they're really good. So I went over there. Alfie Arland went as well. Uh, so Alfie and Paolo had already been. I went over. Got a long story short. I basically had an operation over there. They did touch on this big operation I might have to have. If, but they were other procedures they had to go through. for. So I had this little operation. Come back again. Rehabbed it. Blew up. Back over, another operation, same again. Actually got back into training this time and got on the bench a few times. I think I played in the, the UEFA Cup, uh, TNS at Cardiff. That was the only game I played for a few years. So I got back for quite a while this time, but then it went again. So this is when I'm thinking, well, this this could be it for me now. Uh, I'd had four operations in probably around about a year, if that, and... I've not played, I've hardly trained and my knee just didn't feel out. I was only 23, 24 perhaps, 24 at this point. So then I remember getting in touch with the people in America and then the operation that they'd touched on when I first went was to have a dead man's cartilage implanted in my knee, which was a procedure that they didn't do in Europe then. So that's why obviously... I had to go to America, so I had to. Then I had to. So it was decided. We sent them some scans over, um, and it was decided that I needed to have this procedure. Um, and to have this procedure, your knee has to be in a certain condition, not too far gone, but you know you need to be youngish because it's a long rehab thing. Um, so I had to go on a donors list and I had to wait. So I, I just had to wait for a couple of months for them to ring up and say, right, they had all the measurements of my knee. They knew exactly what they needed, and they have to wait for the right, someone to die almost, for you know, and they just said it needs to be someone of a similar build and size to you with a similar age, um, with obviously a good a good cartilage, and you know, got a phone call, right right over Christmas it was, because I went early January, and I uh, went and had this operation, they took, you know, they give me a 70-30% chance of it being um, a success, and I'll never forget, I went there with a physio who's called Jim Webb and we sat down in a waiting room, waiting to see the doctor and this guy walked in and he was in all sorts of pain. And he sat next to us. And I said, oh, you look like you're struggling. And he said, yeah. 
had a meniscal transplant last year, which is exactly what I was having. And I'm like, oh, God, you know. And I asked him, and he's like, yeah, it's all... And I looked at his knee, and it was all swollen, and, oh, I'm thinking... So that's sort of like, you know, I was optimistic, but then, you know, when you see that... Anyway, spoke to the doctor, he's like, yeah, you know, we're as optimistic as we can be. Had the operation, it was deemed a success. I mean, my body could have rejected it, and but they said you'll know within like a week, ten days, if that's happened. And it took me time, took me a year to get back from that. I mean, I went for crutches for six weeks, I was on a walking stick. I mean, I'm 24, I'm on a walking stick. I give it, I packed, I didn't have a drink for a year. You know, so all the drink culture and that had gone out the window. I just, I just thought, right, I need to get this right. And if I don't get it right, I never play again. I need to know that I've done everything I possibly can to get right. And then if I have to pack in, I can never turn around and say, well, if I did this, I did that. So I lived like a monk for a year. I was like, I was going swimming and stuff on a Saturday night when the lads were going out. I just, you know, just I didn't, didn't want to go out. I weren't interested in going out and... Uh, just wanted to get myself right. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Facebook.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Right at the end of Nicky Weaver's story there, he referenced a question that I'd asked him earlier in that interview about a drinking culture at City under Joe Royal. That was in last week's episode as well, so go back and, uh, and have a listen to that if you want to want to find out a bit more about what Joe Royal had to say about that and what Nicky Weaver had to say about that. Um, but he obviously had to deal with a, a long injury midway through that season, but one player who played his final games for the club at the beginning of the 2001-2 campaign wasn't able to deal with his injury in quite the same way. This is Jeff Whitley talking to the podcast back in 2010. I brought my leg at Norwich away, which was the second game of the season, and from there it was quite tough. I'd not, I'd not had a long injury like that through my career, and um, it was a tough time. I didn't know how to deal with it. I did probably all the wrong things to cheer me up a bit and you know I went out a lot um, and again you know they, they were telling me loads of people were telling me to calm down and obviously Kevin Keegan had several words with myself um, before he really had enough um, but came back and just wasn't in his plans but a lot was to do with my antics off the, off the off the field. How how often was it you were you were going out? It it it, it varied. You know, I could I I could I could could have stayed in for for weeks on end. Um, you know, and then it started off on a on a Saturday, and sometimes rolled into a say sometimes it came quite quite a regular thing on a Sunday, um, and then. Before long, it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Stayed off it Thursday, Friday. I didn't play Saturday. But the longer it went on, it was Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And even the odd Friday um, before, you know, before big games. But again, I didn't know what addiction was. I didn't know how to deal with addiction. My issues were from... From, from from being a child, you know, and they, they they caught up with me later on in life, you know, losing my parents at a young age and I'd never seen two people connect and have a healthy, balanced relationship or have my parents tell me the values of life and what's important in life and, you know, 
be truly grateful for what you have in your life. I didn't know I had a massive ego and low self-esteem. You know, there's times when, you know, I was playing football and people were saying, you, you know, you're doing a job that you love and this and that. But if you're not happy in yourself, you ain't going to love what you're doing. You ain't going to be grateful for what you've got, you know. And it's like that with any, I personally think, it's like that with any job. It's not regardless whether it's football. If you're not happy in yourself and you haven't got a, you know, a, a lovely piece in in, in in yourself I just don't think you're going to go into any job and be raring to go or raring to be you know doing something that you love because your head's not there I use drinking drugs to get away from myself when did you realise that you had a problem? when did I realise? I sort of already knew I had a problem but I didn't know how to deal with it You know, going into going into big games and knowing that the week that you've just had, you've not prepared. You just, you just you you don't need to be Einstein to realise you've not prepared for a game. But I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. You know. But as I know now, that I'm allergic to it. Once I put a drink into my system, that. The mental craving for me doubles every time I put another drink into my system. So I have all intentions of maybe going home after two or three drinks. And then, oh, do you know what? I'll just have one more. Then I'm with the lads. So I can, you know, then I start lying to my missus. And then before I know it, I've had seven or eight and so forth. And then, and I used to do that. So many times, so many times. So there's, you know, there's been loads and loads of different scenarios. But at the end of the day, like I say, when I, when I got to a point of, I was running out of money, I was physically, physically dying. I was coughing up and throwing up blood. I would only go to sleep. Towards the end, I'd only go to sleep when the, my body shut down. So I'd go, I'd go. Days, weeks without sleeping, and then at the end of it, I was, I was, I'd had enough, and I was praying to die. Hear all of our city interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. Jeff Whitley speaking to us there. Now, in the years that followed, he turned his life around by going into rehab, and he now speaks about the dangers of addiction as part of the welfare team at the PFA. Um, when you hear that that sort of story, Howard, from from Jeff, and, and kind of how how things went for him um it's it seems difficult not to believe that there wasn't some sort of of cultures that that keegan needed to change at city doesn't it yeah i mean it wouldn't have been just at city would it i mean it was uh you say different times but it's dangerous of course it's it also i mean what whitley shows is you, do, you don't know what's going on in people's lives i say it now i say it when you know, how did John Stones play last week? It's, you know, it's been playing badly for ages. It's like, you know, people have lives outside. It's not just about how good football you are. And it's, yeah, it's... It's enlightening. I say enlightening is probably the wrong word. But, you know, it makes you realise that these are human beings when you hear about the struggles that we wouldn't have known about at the time that was going on behind the scenes. But obviously, as I said earlier, this the game was changing... Uh, 
with, with foreign managers with you know Wenger coming in and even Sam Allardyce was you know ahead of his time at Bolton when he was there who would shepherd in a new way of, of playing the game it had to become more professional and I imagine there was a huge drinking culture at a lot of clubs during that period yeah it couldn't have gone on because how can you be successful when you're living lives like that and of course it's it's so dangerous for players and it's dangerous when they're not playing football because then yeah how do you fill your time when you're not playing football if you get an injury and you're already a part of a, a you know a drinking culture it's a very dangerous game you're playing yeah well I mean Keegan in his autobiography talks about selling Mark Kennedy to make a point about nobody being safe at the club if you, if you can sell one of the best players to, to change attitudes then you know nobody's safe and then yeah. uh, people forget as well he almost sacked Richard Dunn part way through that season when Dunn turned up to training drunk yeah so there's there, there were so many different things I mean wait, how how do you think that changed things on the pitch for City Keegan gave off this image of someone who was not a disciplinarian or if you just knew him from seeing him post-match interviews. So I think it was important that he, you know, like any manager, that he doesn't let stuff like that get out of hand or doesn't stand for it. So I don't know how much it influenced on the pitch, the fact that he, you know, obviously fitness-wise, it must help when you stamp out a coach like that and become more professional. Uh, it must help in a long Ten, you know, 46 match season it's got to help but I think it was important for Keegan that he stamped his authority on the squad and was prepared to make big decisions like sacking key players or send transfer listing them if they didn't do what he said Yeah. Well here's Sean Gota speaking to us in 2013 about the difference between Keegan and his previous manager at City Joe Royal and how it changed things both on and off the pitch. Joe Royal and Kevin Keegan were, 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 were almost like opposites and that Kevin Keegan wanted you to go out there and play, believe in yourselves, go out there and play. And no player on the field will play in my team unless they want the ball. That was a shift because we were a, a working class team. It was about everybody working hard for one another. They weren't a big time Charles. We all sort of had average cars. That, that's how we were. And it was early when Kevin Keegan came that the, the, the lifestyle changed for players. You know, started seeing one or two Mercedes come in and BMWs and then Ferraris. And that's when it changed, when the top quality players started coming in. And so Keegan was, was about, about playing out the back, playing through the thirds. It was just about freedom playing. It wasn't, it wasn't, sometimes if we played a team and they outplayed us, what I found was worse tactics for us to outplay that. And, and, and really his philosophy is you are good enough to go there and outplay them. That was a learning curve for me, um, and that, that, that's what I found the difference. But it was a joy because, you know, as a forward player, he was winning the team to create opportunities and, and go on and, and score goals. So I was going to say one of your best goal-scoring seasons. Yeah, so it was great. And, and it was because of the players like Ellie and Al Berkowitz, um, Ellie Bernabe and Al Berkowitz, those two players, you know, they came in and, and was assisting in creating so many opportunities forwards it was like oh you'll, you'll get one or two chances in a game so with that I, all I was doing was, was making sure that my finishing was spot on because I knew in games I'd get opportunities please give us your backing patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast 
we heard from Sean Gota there, Howard, about the creativity in City's team. Um, when, the, when you look at the numbers, 108 goals in the league, it's still the best in the second tier since 1957, that, that tally. Gota himself scored every game and a half that year, and it, it <laughs> almost completed his turnaround in the eyes of City fans, I think, because I think people forget how, how he wasn't a fan favourite at the start, but then seasons yeah. like this one, just you can't help but love him. I mean, what... Over 30 goals in a season, that's just, yeah, ridiculous. And you look back at some of the goals, yeah, Goto always has this, uh, you have this image of him bouncing off his uh, backside or shoulder or whatever. You know, any way he could get it in the goal, he would do. But there's some great goals in there. There's the full full range in a way. Quite a few early doors as well of just rounding goalkeepers. Yeah. <laughs> Huckabee was Huckabee was quite yeah, Darren Huckabee was quite good at that as well. I've never seen a so, season so, where the where the goalkeepers got rounded so often, I'm not gonna lie. No. <laughs> I think yeah, was, I think he was uh, harshly done by sometimes when he was in the in the groove go to and he'd have long purple patches, you know, he had good control and could score a wide range of goals, but you know, that season, yeah, it was just they were just going in from all angles. Yeah, piece of, piece of trivia for you. Gota scored as many hat-tricks at Turf Moor as he did at Main Road. Um, <laughs> one of the iconic images of that season is Gota celebrating with Moonchester at Burnley after, I think it might have been his third one, just ran over to the corner. And I, it feels like he's just punching Moonchester in the face. It's great. It's great fun. <laughs> uh, the other one that I wanted to bring up was, do you remember the, the Nottingham Forest goalkeeper, Darren Ward, uh, just rolling it to Gota for him to, to finish into an open net for no reason whatsoever? Well, I assume that came after... Andy Dibble was it? Or? Oh, it was long after it was because obviously Andy Dibble was. Oh, that might have been at Forest, was it? Well, exactly. This is revenge. <laughs> this was the revenge goal. Yeah, it's honestly this is on Nick Hancock's end of season DVD or, or VHS or whatever. That uh, always used to come out at Christmas time as well because he rolls it out. The defender. The, just moves upfield, <laughs> so he just so he's just rolled it out to no one whatsoever. But that's that's yeah, that's pure goto, is it not? They're, yeah, yeah. Most would themselves, most strikers themselves would be trotting upfield, waiting for the goalkeeper to to kick it to the halfway line. But he was so alert a lot of the time. So I yeah, watched that game in the cinema as well. I don't I don't know why. Right? I I know exactly. I watched that that game was I watched in the cinema. They drew one all at the City Ground. And I watched it in the Odeon in Manchester that now doesn't exist. It was the Odeon that was on Oxford Road near the Central Library. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember why they were doing a screening, but they were doing a screening of, of City's game. It must have been because it was on ITV Digital or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and yeah, I watched it in the cinema. No idea why. Um, any other goal? While we're, while we're on goals and the, and the attacking football from that season, any others that, that stand out? I mean, we have to mention Christian Nagui's hand of God. Yeah, it was the key time, was it not? That was uh, Rotherham at home. We scraped through 2-1. And I think, you know, I think the the good run may have started, you know, soon after. Uh, so, it's like the 86 hand of God. It was quite important in a way. Obviously, you <laughs> managed get yourself, you know, we lost to Blackburn in the, in the League Cup and he got sent off then. So, yeah. But about the only two things he did at the club, uh, but yeah, and then there was of course there was that one, and there was the the goal celebrations at Millwall. So that was a key win as well, three two. But I think it was Sean like Phillips' first goal. It was, and, that, and he started scoring then, and he started scoring the sort of goals you know you remember in your head. Sean like Phillips, you know, pinging them in, yeah, uh, edge of the area type thing that got him running. The goal celebration to the empty stand, 
uh, yeah, that was a that was a big night, I think, in the season. Well, Wright Phillips um, had originally thought he'd opened his account for City on his debut in 1999 against Port Vale, but that was later credited as an own goal. When he did get off the mark uh, that night, City fans weren't allowed in the ground at Millwall. This is what he told us about that uh, about that night. Yeah, I'll never forget it because it, it was quite strange. Me and Darren Huckabee were playing um, Pro Evolution Soccer in the room and we were just playing... And like we just said, it would be so mad if I scored tomorrow at the time when there's no fans, and it just happened, <laughs> happened to go that way. We came, kind of came up with something, to be honest. Um, we always said that what, if, if it ever happened that we scored when the fans weren't there, that one of the boys would jump over and sit down and we'll just clap to him sort of thing. So we, we kind of had it all sorted out, but I was a bit gutted they wasn't there to, um, to see and um, witness it, but... It meant a lot to me and I think it meant a lot to them too. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. You've made it this far, so don't give up now. Howard, I watched that Millwall game on a screen at Main Road. This season right? just... I, exactly. I, I, I watched, I've watched so many games in weird places this season. Yeah. The only time I've done that was the Wigan playoff, of course, there. Uh, Two years previous, yeah, I, I think the club put on a screen for it for it because of uh, because the fans weren't allowed to go. Wow, was it? I vaguely remember they got a really dodgy penalty to make it two all. But yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah. Um, Steve Claridge, I think, scored it in the end. Yeah, yeah, um, some bad referee in that season. Well, while we're on refereeing as well, City was so <laughs> you, you mentioned it earlier. City was so good that they won the league at a bit of a canter. Um, but they they. You know, they're almost the dirtiest team in professional football history that year, uh, with 10 red cards across the season. Wow. The record is 11 red cards in a season. Um, but that City team does have the record for the most different players sent off in a single season, because all 10 cards were shown to different players. Wow. Uh, they were Paolo Wanchop, Kevin Horlock, Ayle Berkovic, Christian Nagui, Richard Edgill, Danny Tiato, Ali Benabia, Stuart Pearce, Richard Dunn and Sean Gota. Um, some of the standouts for that, uh, Danny Tiato against Norwich, he, uh, he elbowed um, oh, Nedegaard, I think. Honestly, that was play acting in. If he did elbow him, it was the back of the head, and he was there going down, clutching the front of his face, as many players will do. Uh, but of course, yeah, the, the infamous water bottles, uh, the water being bottles, kicked up all yeah. over the place. Yeah. P- piece of trivia about that one: the referee asked the fourth official what had happened, and sent him off on the advice of the fourth official, not on the advice of the linesman. Probably don't, the first time ever. Yeah, in City. So. Yeah, and I remember Stuart Pearce just getting into the into the other player's face and going, "Get up!" And yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if I think that was, might have been Mike Dean. Well, Mike Dean definitely sent um, Ile Berkovic off for back chat at Preston. Um, ah, maybe that's the one yeah. I'm thinking of. He thought, yeah. he, he thought that uh, Huckabee should have had a penalty when he went into the box, but Huckabee tripped himself up, so it wasn't a foul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, and yeah. Um, Mike Dean just sent, sent uh, Berkovic off. He must have, uh, like, to get a red card for foul and abusive language then, he, he must have said something horrific. You know, I can't, <laughs> yeah. you know, I can't think what he could possibly say. When you consider what, what players don't get booked for on match of the day these days, it's like... Yeah, yeah but uh, Dean loves a red card, though, he does he does, yeah. I don't remember a lot of them. Uh, Sean Gota being sent off? Uh, handball on the line against Stockport. Um, wow. It was uh, it was in the 30-odd minute or so, and uh, the ball had beaten Carlo Nash, and it was going in, and he just punched it over the bar. 
Right. I know Dunn was sent off in the cup, was he not? Yeah. Um, that was a... Bringing down Craig Bellamy, actually, yeah. I'm sure, yeah. Was that a bad decision? I don't uh, know. No, that was, that was definitely denying a goal-scoring no, right. goal chance. Yeah, but, but we yeah. played well that, yeah, in that, didn't we? So. Yeah. And then Pierce was sent off at Wimbledon and, and just for the final few minutes, so decided to go and sit, sit with the fans in the away end. <laughs> <laughs> with, his, with his boots, too, yeah. Yeah, boots. Still full kit, just sat full in, the kit, away, yeah. Yeah, in the away end. Cool. Nice. Um, Obviously that year, some of the players who have played a big part in getting City out of the depths of the third tier were moved on as Keegan reshaped the team for a new style. Paul Dickoff was also moved on halfway through that season and when we spoke to him in 2009, he explained how his exit from Main Road came about. With Kevin, and you know, I'm not going to sit and slag MD off because if I'm going to say anything to MD, I'll say it to their face. And I have had this conversation with Kevin at the time and since I've left. You know, Kevin, for some reason, didn't think I was tall enough or aggressive enough to play in the championship you know tall enough maybe but um, aggressive enough um, I don't think he could have been further for the truth you know I went and seen Kevin and it was actually it was just bizarrely enough that was September 11th and we played Notts County and I seen Kevin before it and everybody else Kevin had kept telling me that I'll get my chance I just had to bide my time I'll get my chance and he named a team against Notts County which was a team of fringe players um, at that time under Kevin um, and I still wasn't in the team so I went and seen Kevin the day before it and said look what's What's happening? Everybody's getting a chance. You're not giving me a chance. Is it personal? Um, what is it? Because, you know, I'm somebody as a person that if somebody's not happy with what I'm doing, I'll do everything I can to, to try and make it right. Um, I was working hard in training. I felt fit and I felt sharp. And Kevin just kept saying to me, you'll get your chance. You'll get your chance. Wouldn't say anything else. You'll get your chance. And that chance never came. And that's something I was disappointed with him about. I let him know that. And the Notch County game, I come on a sub. Um, and scored, and then the following Saturday I wasn't even in the 20-man squad. Throughout that year, um, he then told me that if a club came in for me, he would let me go. I found that various clubs had come in for me, but he didn't let me go. And when I eventually signed for Leicester, um, he didn't want me to go there, he wanted me to go to a League 2 side, which is the equivalent of, because um, I was told, I've, and I've had this conversation with Kevin, so I'm not speaking at a turn, I was told off other people at the time the reason he didn't want me to go to Leicester because he knew I would do well. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. But don't worry, it'll be over soon. Paul Dickoff uh, speaking to us there. Now, Howard, I, I, I mean, Dennis Stewart, in the interview that we did with him, I didn't use it a bit earlier on, but one of the things he said about Kevin Keegan was that he needed to churn players, you know, get them in, get something out of them, move them on. Is that a fair assessment of Keegan? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, no, I think my he's not alone in this. I think like a lot of managers, he has his his preferences and his types of players. And when he moves to a club, he's not one of those who would just move to a club, I think, and, and see what everyone's about. I remember an interview early in the season, I think it might have been the West Brom one, where he said he gave the, the squad a chance and some of them just, you know, let him down, showed that they weren't up to it. And I think he has a pretty... I think players with him get a short interview period, basically, a honeymoon period. Show me what you're about, I'll keep you. And if you're not, I'll get someone else in. So I think he is one of those that likes to be busy in the transfer market, definitely. Because he has preferences about how to play football and he's, he's not one of those that would just try and mould what he's got into a squad. So 
Yeah, he seems quite ruthless about it as well because uh, yeah. we, we talked earlier about the goalkeeping situation, swapping in Carlo Nash and, uh, and Nicky Weaver. As it was obvious that City were going to be promoted, I think City had, uh, had gone up by this stage but hadn't won the title by this stage. Um, Keegan signed Peter Schmeichel ahead of returning to the Premier League, but it left like he, he completely left Carlo Nash out of the loop. Here's, here's what Nash had to say. We played Gillingham away, I remember that. I don't know how many games. We, I think we'd already been promoted. It was just a case of winning it or, you know... You know, if we could win it, uh, I think we won it quite early on uh, with a few games to go. But um, we were at Gillingham, and um, I had an, I had another decent game there. Um, and Steve Howie got on the bus after the game and said, "You know, the press won a word with you." So I thought it must be because you know I've had a decent game. So went and got off the bus, and the first question they asked was, uh, "So what's your reaction to Peter Schmeichel signing?" I mean, you find out like that, and you know it's. Right away, you think, well, I've done all this hard work to get in the position now, and then it's going to be taken all away from me, and I'm not going to get an, a chance again to, to show what I can do in the Premiership, which was the case. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Carlo Nash speaking to us there. Now, um, to finish on, on this season, Howard, um, you know, you said it earlier on, for a long time it was many fans' favourite season, even after the successes of, of Mancini and Pellegrini, it probably still made a lot of supporters' top threes about that time. Uh, possibly only passed now by the quality that we've seen under under Guardiola in the last few years. This is Darren Huckabee speaking to us earlier this year, talking about how he thought it set the ball rolling for City to be not where they are now, but in a position to get where they are now. Even now, looking back, you know, it sounds a bit drastic, but without that league win and getting back to the Premier League, I, I don't know where, if we'd have this juggernaut that's Man City now. You know, I think it was vitally important that they got back up straight away before they went to the new stadium. And they've just, you know, it's snowballed since from there, really. But I think it's, you know, a real important part of Man City's history. You know, I'm really proud to be a part of a little part of that, that, you know, hopefully snowballed into this absolute juggernaut. Please give us your backing. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Darren Huckabee speaking to us there. Howard, do you, do you agree with that assessment? Do you think do you think without Keegan, City would not have been in a position to be invested into by Sheikh Mansour? Ooh, not sure. Well, you, you mentioned earlier, if what if Joe Worl had stayed, we'd probably have gone back up. So, no, I don't think it's key to the takeover. That's It's too far in advance, that. The key is what he did... You know, it's, we were going to move to a new stadium as well, so we had we had to get back. What Keegan did is he he got us up playing brilliant football, kept us in the Premier League, so that that new stadium was not a damp squib, and it, you know the base was there to keep us in the Premier League. That was key, I think, to what would follow later. Uh, but there's such a chain of events until two thousand eight. I don't think you can really go back to Keegan. I think the move to the stadium was key. We wouldn't have known it at the time, of, of course. And just a little things, if Flaxin Shinawatra had taken over, he probably wouldn't have courted, you know, Sheikh Mansour or A-Dug or whatever. So many other things happened in that seven or eight years. We had a Stuart Pearce raid and so much more. So I'm very thankful for Keegan, but I don't... I think the legacy is he can't... He, he established us as a Premier League side, I think. I think I felt a bit more stable after... And it wasn't really. When you read back, it wasn't as stable as I thought because of the finances behind the scenes, which is one of Keegan's flaws in a way that, you know, he needs to be backed in the transfer market all the time. And that's why he often moves on. Uh, But it felt at the time that he'd established us as a Premier League side for the first time in, well, ages, many, many years. 
and I think that's uh, a good legacy for him. Yeah, I uh, I agree with you on that one. Um, we've got a little bit of. Uh, I'm very conscious that we've that we've created a very very long show here, but it's a very easy season to talk about, isn't it? Um, we're going to squeeze in one quick ask the panel question. Um, it's coming from Twitter. Uh, Andrew Turner asks: Did Stuart Pearce miss that penalty for his hundredth career goal on purpose? Um, this is reference to uh, City got a penalty very late on against, I think it was Portsmouth in the final game of the season at, uh, at Main Road. And uh, they were winning 3-1 at the time. You know, Stuart Pearce was on 99 career goals. All throughout that game, it was uh, the crowd were baying for him to shoot. And it was his old mate, Dave Besant, was in goal for Portsmouth. And it looked almost as if the penalty was a bit dodgy and Dave Besant told him which way he was going to dive. And the the conclusion to come to from that was that Stuart Pearce went, I'm not scoring my 100th goal in these circumstances, and belted it high and wide on purpose. Do you think that's that, that's true? No, why would he? I mean, if Besant is actually wants him to score as well, because Besant definitely pointed, say, just shoot that side, uh, then why wouldn't he take up that opportunity? I don't, it doesn't make sense to me that he wouldn't take it. Well, because he's such a professional that if it's not done in a normal manner, I'm not taking gifts and charity. Yeah, I could see that from Pierce, but I just think he he messed up. To be honest, <laughs> that's my honest opinion. Uh, he was it was laid on the plate to him, and he got a bit giddy and hit it too hard. Just hit it hard, too hard. high and wide. Yeah, why uh, do you high and wide? Do you I, think he'd do it on purpose? I don't know. You know, I can certainly see him not being very happy to accept the gift and going. You know, yeah, it's not professional. Yeah. Because Stuart Pearce is a ma- the one thing you can say about him, even you know throughout his managerial career at City, you would say professionalism is is key to what he does, and he wants because yeah. he wants his players to be professional. He wants he wants the kind of respect of respect the opposition, respect yourself, respect kind of like the game that sort of thing. So if it was a goal that was a, you know from a penalty where the goalkeeper said which way he was going to dive and it was a bit of a dodgy penalty because I think Berkovic or Benabia just flicked it up onto somebody's hand and the referee couldn't wait to give it. So I think that that I I just wonder, you know, a, a part of the back of my mind says Stuart Pearce doesn't doesn't do things like that, you know. Yeah, if there's one player that that would yeah that would have that thought that I'm not scoring this way, then it probably is him. To be fair. Yeah. Right. Well, that's it for this week's Kevin Keegan promotion special. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to my guest Howard Hocking. Yeah, a pleasure. If you'd like some more Blue Moon podcasts, then me and Howard are talking about some of the best City cameos, players who've only had a short time at the club but made a big impression on us, over on Patreon. That's available for $2 a month backers at patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Please also give the podcast a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and we'll be back next week. See you then. was the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast